world needs. And we can see there's an element that Satan uses in our mind to produce the shame of it. And it's just incredible, though, when you think of it, it is the answer that the world needs, the power that is behind it. There is no reason to be ashamed of it. It is what this world needs. And that brings us now into this section of the chapter, which really this section is going to continue all the way into Romans 3, almost to the end of the chapter, Romans chapter 3 for that matter. And that is the fact that man needs the salvation desperately. He needs the gospel because he is abiding under the wrath of God. So we see why man needs it. The truth is in our day, men love to hear about the love of God and the grace of God. But the wrath of God is often left out. That, that, that bleeds over in our thinking. This ideology today bleeds over in our thinking. We get so obsessed with the love of God and the grace of God that we absolutely forget the importance of the wrath of God. And people wonder why the love of God doesn't quite have the effectiveness today when that's all that's really pushed. That's because of not understanding the wrath of God. You're going to see that here today. When you try and apply love without an understanding of wrath, you're going to run into trouble. <clears throat> These verses, by the way, are some key verses. They, they are what allow us to properly explain the gospel. That's why he's going right into it. You think, if, if you've been saved any manner of time, and you know probably a basic outline of Romans already in your head. You know, from the first three chapters dealing with what we're getting ready to dive into right now. Three chapters on it. The wrath of God and the condition of man before he's going to get into Jesus Christ in chapters 4, 5, and 6. I watched a video uh, yesterday of a college student, and it's, it's this fellow, he does a fairly decent job, he speaks at college campuses just outside, more like, he doesn't do the, he doesn't stand up and preach and hold signs or any of that stuff, I really like the format of what he does. Um, he's, he, he, he'll have a crowd of students come in, and he basically does, uh, without, without even really arguing, he's, he, has a, he certainly has the gift of this, but he has a debate with them. And he can be very challenging. And he, he can really get some of the students to really listen. And so he had a female college student challenge him and said that she believed in God, but her God was a God of love, and there's no way that if a God loved her, would ever send her to hell. That's a common thought today, isn't it? People can't, they, they can't, they, they don't understand how to, how to mix the two between the wrath of God and the love of God. And again, that bleeds even into our Christian understanding and how we walk. That is very, very dangerous belief. Many Christians say, even when trying to attempt to witness, they don't bring up God's wrath and judgment. But you can't properly present the gospel without it. I remember reading an illustration years ago. Actually, I'd just begun debutation. Uh, I don't think I was even out of Alaska yet. We started the churches in Alaska, and I was reading this book on, on presenting the gospel. And it was a pretty good book on it. I remember I had some issues with it. But I love the illustration he started off with, I think, in the first or second chapter. And he said, he said, many times how we go to present the gospel, it's like trying to, trying to present it to a man. You're sitting, on an, you're sitting on an aircraft with all these people on it. And you go to the guy next to you and you say, here, put on this parachute. And he looks around and nobody has on parachute. He's like, no. 
He goes, no, go ahead, put it on. This will give you safety. It will give you security. It's going to give you peace. And he's like, no, I'm not putting it on. He said, now, let's change it up. Let's say you tell him, and he believes you, we are going to crash. This plane is not going to make it. You need a parachute. Is he going to put it on? Is he going to care what others think? Nope, not at all. That's because what he did was he gave the bad news before the good news. You need the bad news so you can understand what the good news is all about. When it comes to the gospel, we start with the wrath of God. Just like it does here in the book of Romans. We start with the bad news so that they will see the good news in what Christ did for them. It is only when you see the wrath will you understand how much God loves you. It's only when you have an understanding of God's hatred for sin that you begin to comprehend His love for you. When you skip that part, you will cheapen God's love for you, and that will always show up in how you serve Him. You won't even come close to grasping the love God has for you, the immense love He has for you, until you understand His wrath. Let me give you a really good quote from one commentator who could speak it much better than I can. He said this, How can people understand anything about love if they don't understand God's hate? How can they understand anything about His grace if they don't know about His law? How can they understand forgiveness if they don't understand the penalty of sin? Men cannot understand. They cannot seek grace and salvation unless they are affected with the dread of the wrath of God that is upon them. Unless men sense they are in grave danger, there is no pressure applied to them to change. That is true. This is why when you approach love without the wrath, there is no pressure to change. There's no fear of God. It's just everything's all right. You are leaving off the key ingredient that makes God's love so effectual in the lives of others. God's love is perfect just as God's hate is perfect. God is perfect in anger and God is perfect in grace. Another quote from a commentator said this. If you understand that God hates sin so profoundly, then you will find it all more amazing that he loves sinners. So that without an understanding of his hate, his love is crippled in our thinking. Love and grace, our favorite terms, are void of meaning if God does not hate. Too often we push our concept of wrath, our concept of anger on God. God's anger is perfect. It's not like man's. God's vengeance isn't like ours. It's not out of selfish desires to hurt others. His is just and it's right and it's necessary. God's wrath is settled. It's a determined response of a righteous God against sin. Some like to say the Old Testament talks about God's wrath while the New Testament focuses on God's love. That simply isn't true. Both Old and New Testament are filled with references to God's wrath. We see it, of course, in the Old Testament with things like the flood. 
the Tower of Babel, Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, throughout the Old Testament, against the Egyptians, uh, against the Israelites, against the enemies of Israel. But we also see it in John chapter 3. We also see it in Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 5. When it comes to wrath, we see a few different types of wrath that are mentioned in the Bible. One, of course, is eternal wrath, which is hell. An eternal separation from God. We see the eschatological wrath, which is the final day. We've talked about that in the book of Revelation. God's wrath coming on this earth in a seven-year time frame. That is being reserved, filled up. I'll talk more about those words in a little bit. We see different cataclysmic types of wrath that God sends, such as the flood, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. We see consequential wrath, which is basically the principle of sowing and reaping. And then we see the wrath of abandonment, which I've talked about before. I'll mention briefly this week, and I will get much more into it in, in the next sermon. This is where God turns men over to pursue their own sin without restraint. And so we're going to be getting into this over the next couple of weeks. Since God has perfect wrath and perfect hatred for sin, what does that mean for mankind? We're going to begin to dive into that tonight. We're going to look at two areas tonight, and that is it. I have two points tonight. The objective of wrath and the origin of of God's wrath that we see in these verses. So let's dive into this and, get all, and go first to the objective of God's wrath. <clears throat> Verse number 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. We'll stop there. I'll tie in the, those last few words with the second point. The objective of wrath. Think about this. When it comes to human history... Human history is not the story of man worshiping idols and then turning to God. Just the opposite is true. Human history is the story of man knowing God, but turning from truth and rejecting God and then being turned unto idols. Do we not see that played out in our own nation right now? A nation that once knew God, that knew what it was like to worship Him and recognize the Creator, that has now chosen a path to reject Him and is being turned over. To herself. That has been common throughout all of human history. Verse number 18 says, The wrath of God is revealed. Revealed here means, by the way, the, the word, the wording, the grammatical structure that is, wor- that is used means constantly revealed. Not just once, but over and over and over. You could almost look at it as daily revealed. The word means to uncover, to make visible, to make known. And it is a continual action. In the word of God and throughout history, by example, we see that God reveals his wrath in two ways. Indirectly or directly. Indirectly are through natural consequences of violating God's laws that are in place. This would be what I referred to earlier, maybe as perhaps an example, that would be sowing and reaping. If you decide to live a wicked, sinful life, your life will have consequences. You will have suffering in your life as a result. You will reap what you sow. 
That's a form of God's wrath. And then we have direct personal intervention of God for the purpose of wrath. There are times when God directly intervenes. Now, for the saved, he does not intervene with wrath, but he will intervene with chastisement. We see God's direct intervention because of sin and many examples in the Word of God. I'll just touch on a few. We see it in the garden, of course, when Adam and Eve sinned. And, 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 and you think about that. Here they are. Some people think, man, what, but that was such an extreme what God did. No way. Are you kidding me? I mean, God gave the warning. The day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And here is what God, here is this dirt that he gave life and directly disobeys the one command he gave them. And you know what God actually does do immediately when they sin? Was he immediately showed grace. From moment one. One, they didn't physically die that day, did they? Now, a separation of death occurred. But they didn't physically die that day. God even showed mercy and grace in clothing them. I mean, think of all that God did in that moment. And, and some look at, look at what God did. No, he showed such grace and compassion. We see God intervening, of course, in Genesis chapter 6, about, what, 1,500 years after that time frame, with the destruction of the known world at that time through the flood. We see him intervening again in the book of Genesis in a form of wrath with Sodom and Gomorrah. We can even see God's wrath revealed in the sacrificial system set up to cover sins before Christ came. And the greatest demonstration of the wrath of God given in the Word of God is Jesus on the cross. His wrath is constantly being revealed and it is very evident. This is a scary thought. I was thinking about this one and it's, it's a fearful thought. If God lets some men sort of get away with it, prosper for a while, you don't see judgment, it's coming. It's coming. It's filling up to a certain One commentator said this, The longer God pulls back the bow, the deeper the arrow plunges when he releases it. We learn, as far as the objective of wrath here, what is producing the wrath is what I mean by that. The first thing given to us is man's ungodliness. This is an interesting word here that is used. The word means, get this, impiety towards God or neglect of worship and honor due to God. Interesting. I had no idea that before studying that out this week, that that was the direction that this word went. It refers to the fact that people had failed to honor and worship the true God. 
So the first aspect that will bring, that brings the purpose, the objective of God's wrath, is to put the judgment on those people who have sinned towards God. While the unrighteousness we're going to get to deals with sins towards self and other men. So the ungodliness focuses on our sins and our relationship to God himself. It refers to a lack of reverence, a lack of devotion, a lack of worship, which leads to idolatry. And listen, our nation is filled with idolatry, packed with it. No, we're not worshiping stone and idol gods. Make no mistake. Remember, I, I stress this all the time, well before this message. We are designed to worship. Every single man has that in him. Every single person alive. If you're not worshiping God, something else has your heart. And that is getting your worship. See, this one is dangerous like this because men today have the idea that if I don't sin against others and I live an honest, good life, I'm okay. No, you're not. By virtue of order that is given, the one that is stressed most is your relationship to God. It is a great sin. When you sin against God by not worshiping, worshiping Him as He should. He is the Creator. It's not you. So Paul shows that the wrath of God is revealed against those who neglect God, refuse to give Him the position that He deserves. And then he said this wrath is against unrighteousness. This is now a sin towards people or towards self. Again, ungodliness is sin against God. Unrighteousness in this verse that we're dealing with is against man. You, you almost see this taking place in, 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 within the first couple chapters of Genesis. Man's first sin in the garden separated him from God. His second sin separated him from man from man with the murder. And so God also sees the iniquity that we have and the, from the, the fighting, the backbiting, the gossiping, the murdering, the, the on and on and on. And that gets to a point that leads to God's wrath being revealed. And then we get into what I want to focus on this evening, the origin of God's wrath. Let's go back to 18 here. He starts off talking about how his wrath is revealed because of ungodliness and unrighteousness. He says this, On men who hold the truth in unrighteousness because... That which, be, that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath shewed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now first, let me say this. Obviously we are dealing with, especially here, the Gentile nations like us. He is dealing with what we call general revelation here versus what we call special revelation. This is special revelation. We have God's Word. The objective or the purpose was to punish ungodliness and unrighteousness. We saw that in verse 18. 
But now he gets into the origin of this, the cause of all of this. What led to this? What led to them dismissing God, not giving God the place? What led to them being filled with uh, fighting, backbiting, greed, all, the, all the, uh, the, the sins of the flesh? Verse 18, he said these words, that these men were holding the truth in unrighteousness. The word held here is interesting. It's not like you would think. It means to restrain. To restrain. It means that men have the truth of God, the Creator, but they restrained it. They restrained that truth. Man had clear evidence, proof of God, yet what he did was he chose to ignore it or deny it. Remember, there's consequences. I've said this time and time again. If there is a God, which there is, then that brings absolutes. Now, because of today's terminology, many might not quite understand what I mean by that. What I'm saying is this, is God determines morality. And that never, ever, ever changes. It does not. Cultures can't adjust morality if there's a creator. The truth is, because of our sinful nature, man likes to do what he wants to do. And it's more convenient for him when he wants to give into his flesh to dismiss God or create God in his image, which is now idolatry. So he can sin as he pleases. Man has always had clear evidence or proof of God, yet it has been denied, ignored. He has chosen to willfully, sin, willfully ignore it and not seek the Creator because of his sin. Again, a quote from another commentator said this, Man determined to practice iniquity. They chose to exclude the knowledge of a pure God and to worship impure idols by which they might give a sanction to their lusts. Their vice and tendency to iniquity was therefore the reason why they had so little knowledge of a holy God. See, that's what we do. We like to recreate God in our image so we continue in our lust. And so we want to dismiss the wrath of God. We want to dismiss the judgment of God so we can be content in our lust. Man desiring his sin, refusing to restrain himself, wanting his pleasure, held back truth. Because the truth is, as it tells us here, God is known. That's what it says. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. I think I'd said it just this past Sunday. I say it all the time. You hear Christians just agree with it. I've heard pastors from the pulpit say, I know we can't prove God. Yes, we can. Really, that's stunning to me. The proof of God, the evidence, clear cut is there. Nothing did not create all this. Look around you. It screams creator. To say there is no God is simply you are a fool. Period. To deny the, that all this just happened out of nothing, that's just absurd. It should hurt your brain. Do 
God is known in creation. He has also, according to the Word of God, has sovereignly planted evidence of His existence in the very nature of man by the virtue of reason and moral law. I don't care where you are. When you sin, conviction hits. I don't care if you've never heard a sermon or never won one page in the, book, in the Word of God. Now, it gets to a point, and the Bible's clear on that. You keep that up, the time will come when your conscience is seared. And that will disappear. Not everything about God can we know, but certain things can be known. Just through creation. And that's what this is dealing with. We can know by virtue of creation, His existence, His attributes, like His power and His wisdom. Again, Paul is dealing with general revelation, what we call it, not special. We are talking about people that do not have the Word of God, have never heard. All right. This is the answer to that question that people give all the time. What about the person in Africa? What about the person in New Guinea? What about this person? We're dealing with that right now. No man is working. That's going to be my conclusion. We'll have an excuse. No one. The fact of creation, general revelation, is something available to all men everywhere equally. So how is God known? Well, as we see it here, for the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood, it gets even better, by the things that are made. So let's dive into this a little bit. Creation screams and is solid proof of a creator. Look at Psalm 19. And I know I can, and you've heard my testimony, I can attest to this. I remember, again, we went to church Christmas and Easter. Uh, I knew not, there, there, well, there might have been a giant Bible in our house. I take that back. I think there was a great big family Bible in the house. Um, I was going to say there was no Bible, but I think there was a great big family Bible. Um, and this is before I ever picked that up, though. Um, and just at night in the summers, just to go out by myself and lay down and stare at the stars. You want to know what that was? That was God's revelation, revealing himself. Know what that told me? There's a creator. And just laying there as an eight, nine-year-old, ten-year-old boy, like, wow. He must be incredible. You know what that was putting in motion that day? I would hear the gospel. The light that was given, I was responding to. Psalm 19 Verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. 
Their, law, their line has gone out throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of heaven and a circuit unto the ends of it, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And then it continues going on to the special revelation, starting with the general revelation. I mean, it, 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 it all starts with that creation. When you look up screaming at you, there is a creator. It doesn't matter where if you're some man living in Germany right now, maybe a German businessman, some entrepreneur that is just simply obsessed with your career, who's been brought up in a primarily atheistic society, I guarantee you that that man, who no doubt there's probably two million of them that exist at least in Germany right now, have had those moments when they've looked at creation and had a choice to make. Anybody who's honest with himself would realize the foolishness of believing nothing created this. Or whether you're the American obsessed with your progressive politics. You see the same creation that all of us see. To a villager in a remote island... Creation screams proof of a wise, almighty God. And I believe this, that in the day we live in, that the truth and the power of general revelation in our day is much greater than any other time in world history. I believe a simple flower proclaims God. But in the day we live in, because of the advancement of science, oh my goodness, does it so much the more scream creator. Let me give some examples. One DNA strand. 3.1, one DNA strand, not all one. 3.1 billion bits of information in one single DNA strand. Mind-boggling. If you were to unravel all the DNA in your body, think about this, just one person, take out all the DNA, if you were to unravel it, it would span 34 billion miles, reaching to Pluto and back six times. That's in your body right now. Each single strand has 3.1 billion bits of information. Oh, but this just happened in an explosion. You're a fool who simply desires your sin and doesn't want to submit to a holy, righteous God. This is scary. If you took out all the space in our atoms, in in, a human body, this, I verified this on a science website, just to make sure this wasn't made up. So if we were to suck out all the space that is in between us as people, I'm just going to read this. 
if you took out all the space in our atoms, the entire human race, using a calculation of 7 billion, would fit into the volume of a sugar cube. <laughs> yeah, Greg's face says it all. <laughs> what? <laughs> the sun, which is the largest object in our solar system, but is minute compared to so much in the universe could hold inside of our sun, you could fit 1.3 million Earths to fill it. Let, let's, let's talk about other things that are just incredible that prove God. Um, certain birds and how they navigate. I was reading about a particular one. For whatever reason, I did not write down the particular name of this bird. There's a name of it, but... Anyhow, it's one of the birds that many do that navigate by stars, which is really is incredible. So they did an experiment with them. They took these birds and they raised them in a building, never having seen the sky. All right? So they never saw the stars. And these weren't Christian scientists. These are scientists who wanted to see what would happen. Anyhow, even if they were shown an artificial sky, but when that was done, they were raised, shown a sky, even though they have never seen it, they would immediately orientate themselves to the proper place to which they migrate as a bird. Amazing. This gets pretty neat. Think about this. There are an average of 1,800 storms in operation at any time on the planet. And the energy expended in these storms amounts to almost an inconceivable figure. 1.3 billion horsepower. That means right now, just in storms alone, and this is happening every day constantly. That would move your vehicle a little bit, wouldn't it, Greg? A large caterpillar machine has 420 horsepower, requiring to move that, that horsepower 100 gallons of fuel a day. Think of how much fuel God has to operate these storms with 1.3 billion horsepower that all these storms have at any given time. Amazing. A Canadian physicist wrote this. A rain of four inches over an area of 10,000 square miles would require the burning of 640 million tons of coal to evaporate enough water for such a rain. Did you get that? 640 million tons of coal to mimic one tiny storm that God does. And to cool again the vapors, thus producing, collect them in clouds, would take another 800 million horsepower of refrigeration working night and day for 100 days just to get that one rainstorm. An agricultural specialist gave something else that he found pretty profound. We just take so much for creation and what God, this is then what God has made now. Creation and then made, how he maintains it. With what he's doing every day. And man ignores him. Anyhow, this agricultural specialist gave this. He found that the average farmer in Minnesota, free of charge, because God doesn't charge, 
gets 407,510 gallons of water per acre per year. Free. Nearly a half million gallons of water that God supplies to his farm at no charge. Think about this one. The earth is 25,000 miles in circumference. It weighs, here's a new number, well, for some it won't be, septillion. It weighs six septillion, 588 sextillion tons, and hangs in empty space and spins at 1,000 miles an hour with perfect precision so that time is kept to the split second and at the same time careens through space around the sun in an orbit of 580 million miles at 1,000 miles a minute. What God has made. Incredible. Our human heart, the size of our fist, weighs less than half a pound. Your heart pumps 1,800 gallons of blood every day. I lost my place. Oh, here it is. Your heart does enough work in 12 hours to lift 65 tons one inch off the ground. I'm not going to the gym anymore. I feel pretty good right now. The distance to the earth from the sun we know is 93 million miles. It takes light from the sun traveling at 186,000 miles a second. Eight and a half minutes to get here. The speed of light being 186,000 miles a second. If you take that speed of 186,000 miles a second, going 60 seconds a minute, 60 minutes an hour, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, that light travels over 6 trillion miles in one year. And yet, if you're to go across our galaxy, the Milky Way, where our, obviously our star is, is sitting in, our sun is sitting in, traveling at that rate, at 6 trillion miles a year, it would still take you 125,000 years to get across our galaxy. And our galaxy is just a tiny one out there. The vastness of space is incredible. And as I was studying this, I, I, didn't write, I don't think I put that down here. I did not. But I, I did look up again the, the, the largest object in space, which was found in 2013. That's when they were finally to get a glimpse of it and to begin to start to measuring it. It is, uh, I think it's 11 billion light years wide. One object. Think of that. Think how enormous that is. Another thing that I found fascinating, I didn't know until studying this, going to different science sites for this, is they have also found, I think I've read this before, but maybe I think I forgot about it, this enormous blank space with nothing in it. They, they know right where it's at now. I mean, there's nothing, and it's huge. I, I mean, it's, I mean, we can put... a bazillion of our galaxies in this huge, they say there's nothing there. There's not a gas, there's not a star, there is nothing there. Yet it's surrounded by so much. And they don't understand, why is there nothing in there? I'll finish with just one more. Carl Sagan, who many of you I'm sure I'll recognize that name. This is an article he did for the Encyclopedia Britannica about DNA. 
He said the information content of a, of a simple cell has been estimated at around 1 trillion bits, a full cell. He then went on to explain the enormity of this number by stating, so with one cell we're talking about, that if one were to count every letter of every word of every book in the world's largest library, over 10 million volumes, the final tally would be approximately a trillion letters in that library. Thus, a single cell contains the equivalent information, uh, informational content of more than 10 million volumes of information. Amazing. Now, through this, go back to Romans chapter 1. What has been made clear through creation? Two things it gives us. Two things that are critical for man to understand. For the, verse 20. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by things that are made. What is it? Even his eternal power and Godhead. He says, when man just looks at creation, there's two conclusions that all men come to. There is a God, and he is all-powerful. His eternal power and Godhead. I mean, when you look at the order, the power, the might, the size, the complexity from how enormous to how tiny we, we see things in creation. You begin to see... The, the knowledge, how, is, how he is just all-knowing, how he's all-powerful, it allows you to the conclusion. And I keep on top of this, by the way. When man is honest with himself, realizing there is a creator, at the same moment, he has God's Spirit working on his heart, saying, yes, that's right, there is a creator. I'll, I'll never forget, I think that's one of the reasons why God put us in New Guinea. Uh, that, that the old man, Tuli, that I led to the Lord, that was faithful and still faithful there had prayed back, he said it was sometime in the 70s, he was like 20 years old. 20 years old, just tired of everything, and he said, I had just prayed. Knowing God is there, wanting more, and asking God to show him. And he was the one who said, I'm not big into visions, I'm not, he wasn't charismatic, he didn't know about the charismatic movement, uh, about a white truck coming through and a white guy getting out of it. And then that's when he came to church that day. Exactly, exactly. I got a flat tire right by. I got flat tires everywhere, though, so that was pretty common. He responded to the light that was given, and God gave more light. Again, he's the eternal power. When you look at creation, how massive, how perfect, how complex, you know God is powerful. You know God is there. We're getting ready to get into this, so I, I, I'm not going to, it's late anyhow, I'm not going to turn there now, but I was going to turn there. But we will be there. I'm not sure if this Sunday I'm going to preach for Mother's Day or just go on into Acts 17, I'm not sure yet. But in Acts 17, when Paul is at Athens, know what Paul's going to preach? What we're talking about right here. He's going to go into that pagan culture, and he's going to claim the Creator. It's exactly what he's going to do, and you're going to see that sermon. Tertullian said this. He's one of the early church fathers, if you don't recognize that name. He had a lot to say about this God being revealed in creation. He said, It was not the pen of Moses that initiated the knowledge of the Creator, 
The vast majority of mankind, though they have never heard the name of Moses, to say nothing of his book, know the God of Moses nonetheless. He said, nature is the teacher and the soul is the pupil. One flower of a hedge by itself. I think and I do not say a flower of the meadow. One shell of any sea. Of any, excuse me, one shell of any sea you like. And I do not say a pearl from the Red Sea. One feather from a common fowl. To say nothing of a peacock. They speak to you of a creator. He's right. When you just look at the beauty and a fragrance a flower puts out. Know what it speaks to you? Creator. Thus the conclusion is this, and I'm done. Look at the last words of verse 20. So that they are without excuse. Even if you're in a tribe and you've been taught that, you grow up in India, and you have been taught that Buddha is your God. That he reached a state of enlightenment. Every single Buddhist, without fail, has seen creation. And knows, without a doubt, fat little Buddha did not create that. I don't care how enlightened he was. That's the truth. He has a choice to make whether he's going to recognize the Creator. No one can say there without excuse, not one person... What happened was what took place in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. They know it's there. But they restrain it. They restrain it. With heads bowed and eyes closed.